This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we are back with part two of our conversation summary, delving into uh, Kostin Alamaru's Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. This is part two. By the time we post this, obviously part one will have been posted um, hopefully for about a week. Uh, And this part... We'll, you know, kind of finish up, go, finish going through the notes that I had taken on the book and maybe have some kind of bonus content on the at the end, which we will paywall as a, you know, as sort of as a thank you to our subscribers to get some exclusive content out there as we've kept as, as we've kept promising slash threatening that we will do. Uh, but Dan, how are you doing this lovely Saturday Good. morning? Good. This is a holiday pod. We are on the, the Saturday following Thanksgiving. I just posted a pic on Twitter of myself uh, enjoying a glass of chartreuse, which yeah. is a French liqueur made by uh, monks, I believe, and uh, it is quite tasty. And uh, yeah, I am you know buzzing, ready to discuss selective breeding, aristocracy. Uh, you know, frankly, it was a drink that I did not even think about the topic of the pod because it's. One of the things I usually drink, but it ties very well into European traditions, breeding, Absolutely. things of that nature, <laughs> as um, as do I. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. Dan and I hung out again last weekend. I was in New York City, um, traveling for for the holiday week there, uh, and we were drinking pastis. And uh, I don't remember if we talked about chartreuse, but it's definitely. I think we might have. I think we might yeah. have, and it's funny because I then was talking to my family about it, and uh, I haven't had it in years, but it's definitely one of the better. You know, as I've kind of waned, uh, started drinking somewhat less, uh, I've become more interested in like different different kinds of things to drink. So I, I, I've been kind of planning on getting a bottle of chartreuse myself. Where did you get yours? Oh, just the local wine and liquor store. Nice. Yes. Yeah, Upscale, uh, you know, bougie Brooklyn, so they have all manner of liqueurs and uh, potions in there. Yeah, is it? I heard something about like there's a supply, de- supply and demand issue with it right now. Was it was it super expensive? If I can ask. You know, actually, <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm going to uh, not dox myself, but uh, dox my wallet here. And this is knockoff chartreuse, the actual chartreuse thing well, they were was, out yeah. of. But if it had been in, would have been like close to one hundred dollars. 
you know, that's not uh, in, that's not an insane amount, but um, it's more know, than I, it used to be. Yeah, I, like I remember to, you like sixty. Yeah. yeah, be you know a little more uh, circumspect with my finances now that I am a small <laughs> business <laughs> right. owner. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, this is apparent according to the proprietor is a similar mix of flavors that <laughs> mimics chartreuse. A kind of if you enjoy chartreuse, you might enjoy X. A chartreuse-themed beverage. No, exactly. it sounds good. Um, in, you'll actually have to hit you up for that. Call out because, yeah. to uh, a friend of the pod, Calvin Westra, in the manner of uh, it is a... Uh, if you enjoy novels, you, you might enjoy a Donald Goins-themed novel or something. There's this line that repeats <laughs> right, throughout yeah. Donald Goins. So it's... Uh, it's funny. A, I have to read that still, but yeah. This is a, if you enjoy chartreuse, this is a, a chartreuse-themed drink. Chartreuse-esque <laughs> beverage. No, I, I would... Again, I... Um, wanting to get a bottle of this i'm not about to drop 100 so i'll probably hit you up for what what that brand is and, and seek it out uh because 100 a bit rich for my blood um on the opposite side of the spectrum as i guess in al- as alcohol i um i have a tall coffee and a piece of nicorette in front of me so i'm going to try and mm. kind of lean into uh caffeine and get into the caffeine and nicotine zone uh, here on this pod today, uh, and I've been reading a little bit about uh, you know you know you have these different various on- online anons as well as like Peter Thiel sort of suggesting the intellectual uh, boosting capabilities of nicotine. Obviously, playing with fire. I've never been a regular smoker, but um, yeah, you know I'm trying to see if I can can have some kind of moderate uh, nicotine enhancement on some of these some of these podcasts. It seems. Is there any issue to taking nicotine? Because, like, obviously with smoking, it's the smoke, the tar, whatever is in there. But I would think nicotine itself is fine for you. Substantially better. It's still as addictive. It's still one of the most addictive. It's still one of the more addictive substances out there. So that's, I guess, one thing to keep in mind. um, But does it hurt you? That's the Uh, question. Basically, uh, it does increase blood pressure, seems to be the intention. A lot of things, but yeah, that. no, it's um, yeah, it's a obviously like a lot of people, I guess, in this on this side of things, uh, interested in kind of alternative takes on demonized substances, uh, and you know, we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, I uh, and not not even get too side side rail side tracked on this, uh, but it is kind of interesting to uh, experiment with the you know podcasting on different uh, substances. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But anyway, Absolutely. without further ado, um, I guess we should backtrack a little bit. Um, Maybe a little I had recap. The, I, of yeah, uh, and it's not going to be a neat and tidy recap because, as we, as anyone who listened to part one or as anyone who's read the book knows, it's uh, you know we're dealing with philosophy here and, and kind of multifaceted uh, aspects of philosophy and the the intersection of philosophy with history and anthropology. So there's a lot to, to unpack. We're gonna. You know, and we all we're also just coming off this Thanksgiving holiday. We'll probably take a second here to warm up, getting reused for these ideas. But hopefully, uh, in ten or twenty minutes, we'll be cooking with gas. Um, <clears throat> since we recorded part one, I did listen to uh, the latest Caribbean Rhythms episode. I think actually I'm now an episode behind again, so I'll have mm-hmm. to seek out the seek out the gym time to listen to the next episode. But uh, kind of the the last Caribbean Rhythms episode I listened to was serendipitously about Parmenides and other other pre-Socratic philosophers in Greece, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Bap talking about this kind of singularity of their sudden emergence within Greek culture. So I found that to be very on point. It kind of reinforced a lot of my understanding of, of what we've been talking about, which was good. Uh, interestingly, kind of Bap gives the opinion midway through, and I'm, I almost can kind of see what he's talking about sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I uh, like to do very academic podcasts like this. But Bapa pines kind of midway through that podcast that basically he believes the radio format is better for entertainment than philosophy. And um, I will say he's probably correct. You know, what we're doing here is it's a little tough. You know, philosophy is sometimes better for the, for the written page and, and, and kind of these more intense dialogues. And I guess he devotes his podcast more to entertainment. Uh, the point is well taken. But nevertheless, we we endeavor um, to get to get some kind of good summary going here of yeah. the many ideas talked about in selective reading and philosophy. Well, not selective just entertainment, education, yeah. right? So we exactly. can explain yeah. the ideas. Maybe the quote-unquote hard work of philosophy is difficult to do in podcast format. But <laughs> I think cer- so, yeah. Certainly the communication of those ideas and discussion of them can be done, which I think can be said to be more than mere entertainment, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess to to go back again, we're talking about Kosen Alamaru's thesis, which was retitled and repub and published for the first time in September. Uh, mm. Titled "Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy." This is away from what had been previously called, which is the problem of tyranny and philosophy in the thought of Plato and Nietzsche. Mm. As we kind of discussed, um, both those titles are apt. Um, Really, this thesis is about the problem of tyranny in um, the problem of tyranny and philosophy in again Plato and Nietzsche. That's a pretty apt description of what it is. Uh, but the sort of slightly more subtextual element in the uh, the original thesis and, and becomes a little more explicit in 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 the, the repackaging as a as an Amazon as a Twitter book. Mm. Um, you know, selective breeding and the birth of philosophy and the connection thereof uh is is kind of the upshot um i guess yeah. uh yeah i mean um <laughs> i'll lob this one at you dan and if, 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 if you don't have a good answer we can just cut this out but um you know uh obviously i i, I was one who kind of spearhead this episode took took more of the notes mm-hmm. um wh- whatever whatever and you know kind of modeled this pot a little bit like our friends art of darkness where each one of them uh, our friends at Art of Dark Pod, where where each you know Brad and, and Ke- uh, Brad and Kevin, um, you know each will will trade episode for episode. Mm. One does the research, one is kind of uh, in the position the of, of of being in yeah, the reply guy or being in dialogue, which is also kind of intriguingly similar to the Socratic method that uh, is not irrelevant mm. to selective reading the birth philosophy. So I guess um, what uh what, what stands out again? Lob this at you. If, if you resent the question, we'll cut it out. But um, what kind of stands out to you from our last conversation? Like, where where do, where do you remember us having left it, or um, what what were your big takeaways? <clears throat> hmm. Well, I think you know, if I recall correctly, we were discussing the extent to which the rise of an aristocracy is um, you know rooted in biology and the extent to which um, the uh, rise of philosophy is rooted in an attempt to um, perhaps reinvigorate or um, 
or disorient the traditions of that aristocracy. And so, I mean, yeah. my takeaway from the last pod was kind of philosophy is something that happens when traditional aristocracies break down and that it can be used for good or ill. But yeah, that it is a that's... fact, that it is something that arises and it cannot be stopped because societies naturally break down due to or evolve due to different factors. Yeah, no, I think I think that is sort of where we left it uh, at the at the moment in history, in the moment of the history of the Greeks specifically, where um, the aristocracy felt itself to be in decline, mm. sort of threatened from all sides, um, and the idea of philosophy as a response to that, as a preserver of the um, aristocratic spirit shall we say or uh specifically of it's sort of and again this is, this gets us into sort of straussian territory that that Coaston very much picks up uh kind of preserver of an esoteric teaching about nature and about um the sort of the brutality of nature on the one hand but also mm. uh an understanding through that brutality and a kind of acceptance of that brutality and, and, and um, an understanding of, you know, a sort of more scientific understanding of how that might be used uh, to bring about human excellence mm. uh, through, you know, chiefly through selective breeding is, is obviously what Coaston focuses on. But again, we also talked about how breeding in this sense applies also to, you know, philosophy as a more general cult, you know, practice of cultivation um, not related to the cultivation of the body um, for the Greeks and very much for BAP. Um, I think that's. I think that is where we left it, and um, mm -hmm. we may have to build a little bit back toward it. But you know, we did have a part one to this. This isn't a neat and tidy part one, part two, unfortunately, where it's lecture note, lecture note, lecture note. Uh, you know, leave having having a crystal clear understanding. You know, we'll circulate. We'll we'll circulate back to these ideas. I think time and time again. Uh, ho hopefully. Hopefully people that are listening to this will, will be able to glean some kind of clarity. Um, but ultimately, of course, I don't, I don't think it's a substitute for actually reading the book. Um, so that's most of all what I'd recommend. But we will keep, keep unpacking. Um, I guess let me just go through, go through some of the outstanding notes I had. This was one kind of more contextual of the book itself, but I didn't hit it last time. So... Uh, it's, it's actually called sort of a meta point. We're, we're stepping back again, but, uh, but I think I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, Dan, mm -hmm. it's kind of, I do think it's interesting to consider why, um, you know, on the last, on the last part we talked about, like I, I, I view Coaston and Bath as separate authorial entities, but you really can't talk about one without talking about the other, given how, how similar, um, the, their ideas are, um, obviously in a broad sense, uh, what the types of interest that Coaston has are clearly the type of uh, interest that BAP has, even if presented slightly differently. Coaston, obviously, uh, these are a, he, he gives a more academic approach, whereas BAP, well, we all know what BAPism is. It's exhortation, not philosophy. It's it's kind of what I alluded to mm. at the top of the show. It's the entertainment of the radio program, Caribbean Rhythms, versus um, kind of exhaustively expounding philosophy. But um, they're, they're two branches of the same tree um and i think yeah so obviously in a broad sense similar but also 
down to specifics, uh, you know, um, even just in his intro, there's a few few talking points I wanted to kind of highlight as similarities between Bap and Coaston, but I also think they'll be good, you know, sort of talking points to, to get us back into the, the swing of the thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one thing that bo- you hear both Bap talk about on Caribbean Rhythms a lot, but also I think in um, Bronze Age Mindset, but but also Coaston talks about a bit in, in the introduction, um, Selective Breeding the Birth of Philosophy, which again was added to the thesis after you know, you know, for this new publication, it wasn't part of the original academic thesis. Um, Kosin talks about how the uh, modern marriage as an institution, he's not against marriage, but he kind of picks up, he takes this line for, mostly from Hartiste, I think, and, and, and similar thinkers that, uh, you know, he's not against marriage, but there's this notion that the meaning of marriage has been significantly diluted as we've moved away from patriarchy and as we've moved away from selective yes. breeding and that now it's basically a raw deal for men um again bap unlike hartiste bap stops short of not recommending and i think he baps a little more um at he's made his peace a bit more with i guess judeo-christian mores about mm. family formation and understands like this is the basic structure of, of the West and civilization, but he is red pilled, shall we say, uh, that it almost is a, an unworthy gamble for a modern man, um, given how bad divorce law can be, et cetera, et cetera, mm. and family law, of course. Uh, so he takes that kind of red pill 101 manosphere talking point. Um, yes. Coaston and, and Bap both. Um, and it's definitely interesting to think about in light of the idea of of selective breeding. Um, well, so like one of yeah. the not Go to on. derail it here, but I think no, one of the can. interesting yeah. <laughs> primary tensions here is under a pure, which is not what we have, but under a kind of pure hypergamous system you would actually have the, you know, depending on what hypergamy is prizing for in the given moment, you would have the most selective and efficient breeding system around. Now, in this current system, men, high status, high, you know, whatever is, you know, desirable men cannot have multiple wives and it's not really, you know, uh, in their best interest to have multiple children. So what you have is the, you know, the chads or whatever having many, many sexual partners. But maybe, you know, maybe they'll get married. Maybe they'll have a wife. Maybe they'll have children. So this is a, you know, a system that disenfranchises many, many men um, and, you know, heartily enfranchises a few men, but those few men cannot serve their reproductive function in a way that would actually complete the uh, eugenic loop, so to speak. So it's, you know, it is what we have is kind of like an inefficient warlord aristocratic breeding system right now, as compared to what would be, you know, the, you know, traditions of the West, the kind of uh, thousands year tradition of monogamy and one yeah. man, one wife. Uh, that is, you know, definitely not selective breeding, right? It's every man right. gets a wife, 
every man has children and uh but that is uh much more cohesive and pretty yeah it's uh yeah so there's clear... there's a tension there because if you're a trad oh, yeah, yeah. you want you know you if you're a trad you want excellence and mastery and the the best right but also you want uh sexual propriety you want um you know every man to have a kind of obligation to participate in society and these two things are kind of at least sexually in tension yeah there is yeah yeah go, go on, on Matt. go on go on well uh, yeah they're, because they're you know obviously the if you want the best you want the best man fucking and impregnating as many women as he can and the you know least competitive men not uh not getting having any children because their genes die off that, however, is not really what is best for a functioning society. So it's it's kind of like how do you um, you know view eugenics and their role? What what is ultimately eugenic to have the best people but an unstable society uh, because you have a whole bunch of men who are disenfranchised who are you know going to oh, yeah. create some <clears throat> trouble probably. Or is it, uh, you know, better to have, you know, yes, and you will have some level. I mean, right now, as we've discussed, we have a lot of assortive breeding in our society with like right. the rich people breeding with rich people, poor people breeding with poor people. But you do not have um, men with multiple, you know, families, except for, you know, frankly, in the very higher echelon, the Elon types. And in the very lower echelon, the you know uh, inner city, <laughs> urban demographic types. And, right, there's um, kind of more of those latter. I mean, there's not. Yes, I'm not, not trying to try to. There's, there's, there's. You know, Elon Musk is is kind of one of the only examples of one of these rich guys. I mean, there's probably others that I don't know about, but it's not like it's the common thing. You know, Elon is kind of an interesting. I'm not trying to extol him too much. That might be cringe, but obviously. As far as these modern elites go, he's he's a better example. He's at least someone that's open to very strange ideas and, frankly, very right wing ideas. Um, whereas the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world are, are much more kind of uh, not even to rely on stereotypes, but you know, much more beta, much more um, self effacing, sort of slave morality elites. Yeah. Um, what's my point here? Just that while there's there is like one Elon Musk and the, you know I guess Peter Thiel, I don't even know I don't know if he's had surrogate children. <laughs> I think probably. I don't, either way, there's a, there's there's some interesting elites, but there's a lot more uninteresting ones. And at the at the at the opposite end of the spectrum, the sort of more inner city uh, polygamy <laughs> and 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 you know having having children with multiple women is um much much more common. So. Uh, but no, no, your point is well taken. It's just, um, that's an example of how despite the la the loosening of some of these social restraints, which we've very much had since the 60s and accelerating even now, you know, having children out of wedlock, having children with multiple women is not the, um, it's not viewed with the same suspicion it once was. So the restrictions have been loosened, but I would argue that the dysgenic element of that has far outweighed the eugenic element. Yes. Um, but it's interesting to note how it can be both. That actually kind of ties in to, to something that I want to write about, and it's a, mm. a, a turn of phrase. I don't know if I 
coined it, or obviously it's just a simple take on another more common turn of phrase, but I think that I want to write about, you know, the antinomian bargain, shall we say, Mm. which I think is very relevant with, uh, in, 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 in discussions of Nietzsche. And and if we're to believe Kostin, uh, very relevant in discussions of sort of Plato and philosophy writ large, um, which is that, uh, you need, you know, antinomianism, meaning, you know, the rejection of <clears throat> the rejection of laws, flouting laws. Uh, in the case of Nietzsche, is a radical antinomianism that, you know, the, the, the uh, not believing in objective moral morality or, or, or moral facts, so to speak. Um, and instead, you know, kind of deducing things down to this will to power and this kind of lust for life. Um, my, my take on this, it's something I'm kind of working over in my head and that I do think is ultimately very relevant to selective breeding in the birth of philosophy is like, um, and it's actually also related to that, that article I wrote now a couple of years ago, a little bit about occultism, but also kind of more my Renaissance of the ritual article about kind of tapping into, um, tapping into that, you know, primordial source of desire, that spark uh, and this is very Bapian, of course, too. You know, that kind of spark of, of lust we have for existence is like the affirmative life spark. Mm. Um, and I, I take, I'm not anti-Christian per se, but I, I take Nietzsche seriously when he suggests that, you know, Christianity can ultimately stifle that too much or even turn it into from a virtue into a vice. I take that kind of thing quite seriously, but mm. that doesn't mean we get too far from the obvious wisdom of keeping um that spark of lust that spark for life you know behind all sort of impulse particularly sexual impulse uh it's it's quite obvious that that does need to be controlled isn't it and you know that if it's if it's let loose on society if everyone is told you know do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law uh, to quote old crowley um it's going to have disaster, disastrous effects for the most of the population. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's an interesting dilemma to think through. Yeah. You need men uh, working together to build things. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a large portion of the men who are disenfranchised, that is just not going to be productive because, you know, you, you can have an elite who is cognitively and athletically or well you could have a a eugenic elite but if you know they cannot rely upon a kind of like stable populace to you know work with them it's going to be very difficult to get you know modern industrial statecraft done and you know kind of beta male rage you know i say this as someone who's obviously not um necessarily chad thundercock but like the type of beta male rage and people even i actually don't necessarily buy into this but i remember finding it to be an interesting theory people would talk about like how polygamy within islamic societies is part of why they have so many sort of raging um would-be terrorist types uh basically writing it off like there's there's a significant amount of sort of middling male sexual frustration within those civilizations i i don't know if i buy into that at all but it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to point out that, you know, if you if there isn't some degree of what amounts to a kind of sexual socialism through through enforced monogamy, uh, you're going to get, yeah, a um, a very angry middle to lower class or you're not. It's, you know, they're not really going to be middle class. They're all they're all going to be kind of pauperized. They're going to be incels. 
and that is not good for the stability of society. So this, you know, the the sexual question and the breeding question is always a mirror of all of these political questions, kind of economically as well. And um, I think what a lot of right wingers must ask, and this also applies pretty well to um, economic thought when we look at how free market economics often have very counter stability, counter traditionalist, counter right wing effects, even though the often well-intentioned, like, you know, um, laissez-faire economics are often well-intentioned in terms of, you know, just let, let the, let the strong, let the strong prevail. Right. But we see that they can have, it can have quite disastrous effects when everything is let loose and you, there's all this discontent and people sort of unionize and, and fight against it. The same thing can happen in the sexual marketplace. So it's like, you have to look for your bananism, um, even at times your Peronism, although obviously, you know, recent happenings in Argentina, uh, we, if, if you understand the political situation that there, a lot of people realize that Peron, one, you know, one, Peronism sort of went awry, but it, but it was initially sort of more like Bannonism in terms of providing a counter, you know, still rooted in, in a, in a right wing take, uh, but, but uh, competitor to socialism, you need to to lean into these sorts of things, um, not to go on too much of a tangent, just interesting to kind of think yeah. about the um, relevance between sexual marketplace politics as well as, you know, good old economic politics. Um, so that's very much consideration, very much an argument in favor of monogamy and the kind of Christian setup. Of course, you have Nietzsche um, is someone who unclear where exactly he'd stand on this looking at the world today unclear even uh where he'd stand on some of the economic questions he was known to have abhorred socialism but uh whether or not he'd be a free market capitalist today i think is highly questionable um these questions are kind of left open in nietzsche but he did you know it it is worth noting his his take was very much that things like socialism and christianity uh were 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 tremendous misbreeders of man Mm. Um, I don't know if you had, had something to add there, but I also wanted to go off that. I, I think uh, there's another level to it too. It's not, it's, so that's like the very pragmatic consideration, mm. like why, you know, why, why, um, might makes right and, uh, why might makes right can't be the law of the land is because it leads to instability. Like that's that's a very basic that's that's the kind of basic pragmatic point against it. I, I think even more fundamentally, and this is very much something I wanted to talk about on this second part, and something I want to write about more because it's relevant to a kind of a con, it's a constellation of a lot of things that I'm interested in. Yeah. I think there's a, a notion, and um, Kostin talks about it a bit. BAP in Bronze Age Mindset talks about it a bit. Um, it's hard to find where, where Nietzsche talks about it per se, but the way Nietzsche has been used and abused, uh, for the past 120 years or whatever, um, is, uh, is highly illustrative of this, uh, which is that, uh, you also can't simply tell people to do whatever they want and to follow their lusts, etc. uh, in an age where people's desires are, um, deeply deeply disordered oh. uh and that sort of gets us to the question of well who's to say what what desires are are, are are ordered and which are disordered that's a pretty big human nature type topic that uh, i'm not sure if i'm gonna deliver my ultimate thesis on today <laughs> but um but 
I think there's some basic things we can agree on. I think that even even people who are you know would re- even Christians who reject the Greeks as heathens, and and frankly even a lot of liberals would would see that the Greeks, the things they extolled, you know, intellectual brilliance and uh, athleticism, uh, is good. Like I think there's some, there's some basic things we can agree. Um, that that are good and that you know in, involve a degree of loss, but that kind of exhibit this flourishing of humanity. I, I don't think it's as contrary. You know, there's so much sort of leftist thought that uh, is like, oh, athleticism is bad, and you know, obesity is beautiful, and, and all these things. But at the end of the day, for the general population, people aren't really won over by that. I think it's not actually as controversial as some academics would like to make it seem. You know, sort of what human excellence looks like, and it's easy to see that the Greek aristocracy and, and kind of being bred through that um, would orient you toward that. Uh, but today's world, even even while we have, you know, we'd like to think we have some shining beacons <laughs> on right-wing Twitter, like BAP and RIG nationalists, you know, pointing, um, I, I, you know, no comment on Andrew Tate, but uh, pointing young men in the right direction, uh, even, even, even in the best case, shall we say, uh, where, where people um, have some good ideas, uh, we're living in a time of uh, an utter chaos of the, an utter chaos of, of the libido and an utter chaos of the drives, and that I think is one of the, the maybe even bigger complicating factors for a more antinomian, you know, follow follow your lust, do what you want. Yeah, and the thoughts. you know crucially the societal incentive structures. So, you know, obviously if one is to follow his his lusts, follow his his passions or or whatever in an unheroic age <laughs> in an age that has been kind of like um denuded of the societal structures that would, you know, preserve you know matrimony and you know kind of channel sexual energy in the right place and you know in the absence of that i feel like you know if you tell people do what thou wilt um a lot of guys they're gonna be gooning right they're gonna exactly be, you know, that's exactly they, right. what what they <laughs> wilt do is they will stay in their rooms and order in uber eats and goon all fucking day no and, the, and the that's that's the problem is a good we yeah we are not in an elevated age where it's like oh well do what thou wilt you're gonna raid the neighboring you know uh town and take their uh their women folk as war brides absolutely and, and yeah. no no though the thou wilt and the problem is this is you know this do what thou wilt has actually been co-opted by the libs to you know create a society where you know frankly um you know people feel a strong sense of um you know, well, my my child says she doesn't want to get married, and that's her choice, and that's yes. a good thing, and she's exercising. This is lit- literally a fight that my uh, girlfriend's parents are having with some other family right now over this exact issue. And, yeah, uh, yeah it's just, you know, parents today have been co-opted and into, you know, thinking that, 
this kind of radical do what thou wilt individualism as long as it doesn't you know as long as what they they want to do doesn't involve saying certain words or yeah. you know otherwise offending the dominant religion um it's you know it's a great thing and it's to be you know celebrated and you know what i mean the the truth is you know and you know even guys on our side you know you kind of like you know, even, you know, even, I, I don't know, even me, like, you give me a day off, yeah, right. and, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, do anything, you, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to, like, sit down and do a lot of work, I don't necessarily want to, like, you know, go on some, like, oh, I'm going to tour the museums of New York City, you know, I, I could very easily no. just, you know, sit in bed uh, and look at porn for hours, I but I try not to do that because yeah. I, I'm not doing what thou wilt, um, and I mean I think yeah. that is the the issue and a kind of um, like I don't think Nietzsche really like in in his era they're the kind of the conveniences the the vices the luxuries of 21st century America were not on access. They were not on tap. Right. So, yeah. like, this kind of do what thou wilt was, like, like in today's age, you can live like, a, you know, a, an aristocrat. You can live like a king. Like, I mean, like, the, um, you know, the porn on, you know, the internet, the, you know, prior to, you know, 10 years ago, only a sultan in, like, you know, Turkey in, you know, the 1700s had access to this level of debauchery. It's, Absolutely, uh, yeah. I, I mean, but the thing is, so crucially, it might be based if you had access to a real amount of that debauchery. That, I don't know, but that, that could potentially, you know, be healthy for society. But to, you know, have access through to this debauchery through your computer screen and have no, like, you know, real life into it's, you know, it's it's very, um, you know, dysgenic. That's the crucial. Yeah, it's dysgenic. And that is the crucial difference, I think, is the masturbatory versus real element. And um, basically, the, the notion of the Bappian concept of owned space is rather crucial here. Um in the all of the supposed debauchery we now have uh, access to is is very maybe not all of it maybe there's pockets of, of something higher somewhere but uh, but basically that your average everyday debauchery that we're surrounded with and subjected to and that I you know Dan you brought yourself up as an example I will of course implicate myself as well I'm no stranger to any of this my uh, you know I, I'm a chaos of different desires and drives myself and you know have have uh, you know the, the the wheels of modernity have gone o over me i try to try to try to try to avoid things uh, like pornography and, and 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 spiritual pornography and 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 junk eating and all this stuff but it's obviously it's all very much with all of us you know this is this is the the it's in the air we breathe, man. It's in the air we breathe, and it's a valve for these desires. But arguably, it's um, it's it's a lame, unreal sort of debauchery that just lets off energy and does nothing with it, as opposed to the pre-owned space kind of debauchery or antinomianism, which you know is is ultimately f towards the end of conquering and flourishing and i think yes. it gets it's not so even of a picture i think because i do i do emphasize like it's still 
in the face of this, and I don't think what I'm arguing here is explicitly anti-Christian, um, although it certainly goes against, or, or it would be a little bit at odds with a lot of different schools of Christian thought, and certainly like Islamic thought. There is, you know, there is a, a, a school within Abrahamic thought which is very, which you know Nietzsche and Bapp and others are right, you know, is quite uh, negating of that that spark of lust. It treats that as if it is a bad thing or, or always a temptation and i really do think it's important to recognize um the vitality um you know of the very thing that makes you watch pornography or or eat junk food Absolutely. or whatever the debauched act might be like I, i'm not i'm not really defending that i'm just saying like the the root spark is something that must be affirmed and rechanneled um this has been my position for a while um and, and the issue the issue today is that not only is it everything within own space but also you know you can debate to what degree these things are intentional i'm a little more in the um i'm a little more of the school of thought that these things are, are not you know by design of some overlords trying to control us um but rather just respond to market demands technological opportunities etc i don't necessarily think you know there's a master design to control young men with pornography i really don't uh, but it doesn't matter because that is the end result anyway yeah. is, is total, um, you know, I think E. Michael Jones, I've never read his book. I don't agree with much of what he says, but he, he talks a lot about this, you know, the, the kind of, I don't remember the word he uses, but the, the total domination of, of the libido is, you know, part of modern society. Um, and that is kind of the end state, whether... Whoever you blame, I don't blame the same people as E. Michael Jones per se. <laughs> um, but that—that yeah. that is the the end the end state. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, regardless of you know whether it's entropy or some sort of you know cabal design or what have you, the the end result is the same. And crucially, once you know certain you know choices were made at the beginning you know perhaps um you know not to be too incendiary but you know even women voting um <laughs> i mean yeah. it, it you know it kind of like well the ship has sailed and these things were like you know it's no longer a conspiracy it's no longer these are just the things that are going to happen as the natural outgrowth of certain decisions that were made for whatever reason at some point in time. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to also highlight it's, I think again, within the fact that there is even within this bad picture of, of, you know, again, I think a chaos of the drives is a good way of understanding modernity. Um, you know, life in the entropic West, um, I think it's really interesting to note that there are, it's not like we're necessarily waiting around for some Hercules to emerge from the muck. I mean, maybe that is what a lot of people are waiting for and what, what BAP kind of advocates. But um, I just think as a really interesting example of someone who, and this brings us into an arts and literature conversation, um, someone who uh, kind of has elements of what would be considered by many to be a disordered drive, uh, but nevertheless is um, an, uh, an affirmative, um, an aspirational figure, it would be Yukio Mishima, mm. one of the you know great uh, heroes of mm. the kind of BAP um, pantheon, um, is of course 
gay or maybe he's not meaning maybe you know maybe people like bap kind of push against the notion that he's gay or push against that identity but obviously was a homosexual was engaged in mm-hmm. homosexual acts and urges and desires um but nevertheless also is one of these higher types and remind you know the section that a lot of people quote in bronze age mindset about mm-hmm. um homosexuality as like a um as a response to uh, of would be of you know very sensitive would be higher types to the realities of all space being controlled um bap sort of describes it as a perversion of that sensitivity um and it's that the the word his words in bronze age mindset could apply very well uh to people who know the life of yukio mishima you know who kind of from a young age realized he loved and was excited by this masculine virility you know specifically in a world where it seemed to be mm. fading fast you know it's it, it probably a tie in here between the type of mishima moment of seeing the world decline and the kind of thing that coaston uh, talks about in selective breeding the birth of philosophy about the greek aristocracy um mm. you know seeing their world decline um, you got to do something in response, as we talked about with the Greeks. It's kind of the invention of philosophy as a sort of intellectual citadel. That's quite different, but I still can't help but note the similar similarity between that moment and um, kind of Yukio Mishima's moment of fetishization, which I think is how Bap understands his um, homosexuality. But and you know, so obviously there, he, he's born into this world. Uh, of a chaos with a you know a chaos of different desires and drives um including homosexuality whatever you think about that you know yukio mishima was afflicted but um nevertheless was able to channel his desire you know that antinomian Uh lust for life drive yeah it made him want to fuck dudes but it also made him want to retake (laughs) japan uh and also make great art um, so I think yeah. he's an interesting example, and you know I would even bring you, you know, the Nutman into this. A little bit. You, <laughs> Thank uh, you. Some, something Spencer Grunhauer, uh, of course, delicious tacos too. There's a lot of people you could cite, you know, who who have these elements of um, perversion and uh, <laughs> different kind of knowingly frustrated and an odd sexual drive, immersed you know, <laughs> in pornography and fetish and fetishes. Um, but nevertheless, kind of realize that the that you can trace the breadcrumb trail of these disordered, chaotic drives back to something more affirmative, and through that become more right wing. And it's um, one I ju- you know I just cited as an example. This is a way of being more remaining, ma- being morally critical while also um, still finding righteousness even within sin, which I think again not really a mouthpiece of Christianity here, but I think that there there's plenty that could be amenable with a more yeah. traditionalist Christian outtake. And I think it's highly relevant to art because art, of course, is um, the, the the perversion and darkness and suffering, you know, that's kind of the stuff of art, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, but, but, you know, you don't want it to just be mm. um, groveling in that either. A lot of the best art takes that stuff and alchemizes it into something higher. I think Mishima is a good example. Um and one may even humbly suggest Nutcracker. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting topic because I do think it's relevant to the anti what I call the antinomian bargain, the kind of spark of antinomianism that Coaston slash Bap sees as necessary at the birth of philosophy and towards selective breeding and towards human excellence. You know, more as obvious as the sun in the sky, how that stuff has gone awry. Uh, but I think the path forward isn't necessarily a wholesale enclavist rejection. Let's go, you know, restart humanity and and and, and you know, refine the principle of the Greek aristocracy. Mm. I mean, I, if you can do that, great. But obviously, uh, you know, all space is controlled. You know, people can't really yeah. function in that. So within that, we have to. We're left with this chaos of desires and the pornography on our laptops and our sexual history and maybe some drugs are mixed in there and different you know chaotic things and we have to find our way out you know through the torch of our lusts and wills uh, rather than against them is, is my take i think mishima is a is a good example yeah i mean i, I think that's very much true um i i certainly got that from bronze age mindset and from BAP more generally, that the idea that the way um, out is through. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought a lot about in my own thinking as a writer and a pervert, that mm-hmm. um, in order to, um, you know, write honestly, you can't pretend to like not be a pervert. You yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the fact is where... You know, we're all children of modernity. Yeah. We were all raised in a society that, you know, was radically open in some ways and radically closed in other ways. And even, you you know, even though, you know, genetics are everything, et cetera, et cetera, well, you know, the way you learn to express yourself and stuff, that probably has something to do with your mental makeup as an adult um, you know, that probably mm-hmm. has, you know, the, you know, even like the, the way you got off as a teenager, that probably has something yeah. to do with the way you get off as an adult, um, to, to not, uh, you know, suggest, uh, too many inflammatory concepts there based on certain theories about the evolution of certain sexual orientations. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. but that being said, I think the, you know, the artist, the, um, you know, what have you, the, you know, anyone really, you, you can't, uh, you can't go, you can't rewind, you can't go back in time. And, uh, you know, specifically for art, if you're holding something back, if you're like, oh, well, I'm actually like gooning for two hours a day, but I'm writing about like being a, uh, a marshal in the, the, you know, the, the next revolution or something <laughs> it's like well you know i mean you can write about whatever you want but it you know it's it's better to you know tap into a kernel of truth and the kind of um the the question that then i think really arises is what do you want for society as such a person if you yourself have a or you know quote unquote fallen nature um, well, so I guess presumably you want your children to not be like you. Well, you know, I don't know if someone without a fallen nature could write Nutcracker. 
Yeah. No. <laughs> so there's Absolutely. Yeah. some, uh, I think there's some tension here. And I think BAP suggested, I suggested in my essay, Traditionally Horny, yeah. that um, it's important for, you can still have a virtuous society, but you can also, within that society, have a counterculture. You probably should. A kind of degenerate counterculture where, you know, but which is understood to be something that is like degenerate and not praiseworthy. And that's, you know, the, you know, the issue today is that things have become inverted and the, we no longer have a virtuous popular culture. We have a degenerate popular culture. And as such, you know, the people who would, you know, previously, um, find inspiration in this kind of, you know, underground counterculture, they, uh, you know, there, there is no, where, where, where does the artist yeah. go for vice today for like, for danger, for thrill? Um, well, not to vice magazine. Anymore. Yeah, th- there we go. <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, that kind yeah. of sums it up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it, it's highly relevant to things. I think we talk about all the time on this pod and definitely relevant to Bronze Age mindset as well. I think it's kind of what you know, more esoteric section at the end, where there's the recommendation to kind of descend into the filth of the underworld and sharpen your claws there and ascend. I think very much in line with this realm of thought. And again, uh, Mishima Bap often talks. I've actually haven't read like Forbidden Colors um, or a lot of his like super gay books, um, <laughs> but I know that even someone like Bap, who's you know right wing, whatever uh, kind of praises the portrayal of the not just the gay but definitely homosexuality was a part of it you know the the underworld of japan that you know existed in the in the 50s and you know that doesn't exist anymore you know that that you know light that like barely policed underworld feeling um is gone you know that there's kind of the on on the um board of uh everything being taken over into this controlled space as he calls it uh, you know, that process has been going on for a while, but, you know, even as of a hundred years ago, there still was this edge, this dark bleeding edge. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think there's a notion that now not even that exists. Um, to keep on this wavelength, cause I, I do, I do like talking about, you know, some of these writers and things like that. Um, it is interesting to think about, um, yeah, again, the antinomian bargain, the uses and abuses of, antinomianism and how it's produced some you know anti so there's some great sort of antinomian art and there's some some bad uh also i think it's i want to get this soundbite in there um kosen talks about how this this notion of you know telling people to basically do whatever they want leading to uh catamites and uh other other degenerate behavior uh is present in the Platonic dialogues in Gorgias, which again I still have. I still want to read Gorgias in more depth again. But I, the part that I know because Coast incites it, or the part that I remember because Coast incites it, has to do with um, so, you know. The, again, I think we talked about this on last week's program. Um, Socrates's uh, partner in dialogue is Callicles, who's come to who who you know is seen in history of philosophy as a precursor to thinkers like Machiavelli and Nietzsche in terms of being an antinomian and an arguer for a certain might makes right as applied to politics and life more generally. And um, Socrates counters that, you know, if, 
if 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 the pleasurable is the good as he suggests then that would mean that someone who is perpetually scratching his head uh is leading a good life which you know instinctively no like that's a it's such a silly example but it's, it's a good example of you know the kind of banality of of scratching an itch like yeah you may be on a constant state of satisfaction but that doesn't mean it's good um I, I believe they do also use the word inside, uh, you know, being a catamite in this as well. So, and Socrates basically warns Calicles that if, uh, you know, if, if might makes right and do it, thou will to the, the law of the land, um, you're going to get a lot of that. You're going to get a lot of people leading lives of empty gluttony and, and other forms of empty satisfaction. And I, I mean, I think intriguingly... Yeah. Yeah, I think that intriguingly, um, this warning Socrates... And again, let's let's rehash. The Costan's thesis is that Socrates secretly agrees with Callicles and that really oh, yeah. a certain might-makes-right antinomianism is an understanding that's behind the birth of philosophy and beyond the birth of politics. Um, but that, you know, Costan's thesis is that Socrates recognized that that had to be concealed for a variety of reasons. One, to prevent um, persecution from tier, you know, per to prevent uh, to counter the accusations that were being lobbed at philosophy that it promoted tyranny. That was um, that was that was one major reason. But I think this is another one: uh, is that it uh, basically what we kind of said earlier that do it. Not to keep quoting the Crowley thing, but I do think by you know by by making do what thou wilt is, do what thou wilt is the whole shall be the whole of the law i mean that's a pretty good kernel of this antinomian thought and um i i so it's obviously that's not what socrates that's not how socrates puts it uh 2000 uh, 3000 whatever years before not mm -hmm. 3000 whatever, whatever. Uh, uh, 2000 and change years before um but you know he does basically warn that that ethos of do do whatever you want is not for the masses because it's going to lead um to you know the perpetual head the equivalence of the glutton and the perpetual head scratcher right and mm. what's interesting is nietzsche by um kind of throwing off the veil and re-revealing um the idea that this kind of antinomianism is behind mm. philosophy and is the, is the basic stuff of life essentially um by revealing that nietzsche makes himself vulnerable um to uh the kind of misinterpretation the exact kind of misinterpretations or, or the exact kind of um collateral damage and and ill effects that socrates warned calcules about and mm. we can see this in the history of thought in the 20th century nietzsche it, if you didn't know any better, you would think Nietzsche was a left-wing thinker. Uh, Right-wing, there's an implicit understanding that he had some influence on Nazis. People know that there's right-wing interpretations of Nietzsche. It's no secret. Mm. But by and large, you get Nietzsche by way of um, Michel Foucault and um, yeah. other other critical theory kinds of thinkers. And I, I, I want to avoid the trap of painting these guys with two... Uh, broad of a brush. I, I haven't read a lot of Derrida. My understanding, based on smart things smart people have told me, is that he Derrida maybe isn't as worthy of dismissal as some of these others. But mm. I think Foucault is a pretty good example. Not a not an unintelligent guy, but someone who literally, quite literally used Nietzsche to sort of 
explore uh, buggery, shall we say. Um, and uh, and it's in the world of literature as well. Um, one of the writers that Coast Insights uh, is Gide, Andre Gide. I, I never found, I was supposed to read Gide in college. I never really found my way into the immoralist. Um, maybe there's more to that guy than I'm about to imply or that Coaster implies, but there's a basic notion that he's like a lefty gay writer who mm. basically had a rather, you know, not too deep, I guess, argument for kind of doing whatever you want in a sexual sense. And look, listen, uh, if anyone wants to defend Jeet, I'm very open to hearing it. I haven't read a lot of it, but I, I do just have a sense that he's this, um, like I really, I, 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 I love me like a right wing gay writer. Like I think it's mm. great, but like, yeah, like a, a, a super gay, super socialist writer for me kind of sets mm. a red flag, uh, that there's a much more empty sort of mm. desire to kind of, you know, one of the criticisms that you get in BAP of, of socialism and communism is all about, you know, filling the stomach. And I think that's true on a kind of economic basis and then when i think about um the sorts of uh yeah sexual component of that it's like an empty like oh well like i should be able to just like fuck whoever i want and there's no there's nothing higher as i'm trying to say yeah um and i found this thing with jeet interesting i'll, I'll shut up in a second i'm kind of going on a tangent here yeah. i found this thing with jeet interesting because i remember uh, when i first bought a copy of confessions of a mask in college uh, the there was a there was a blurb on the back that described Yukio Mishima as the Japanese Jeed, and my dad made fun of me that I was he didn't know anything about Mishima. And he was like, "You're reading a book about the uh, the Japanese Jeed," and I think it's interesting to consider. And I would actually love if we ever got coast you know BAP or whatever on this podcast. I would um, I would love to hear his thoughts on this. Like what to to what degree? Because I mean, instinctively I think no it's not a great way of describing Mishima to call him the Japanese Jeed, but I think mm. you kind of have to, I think there, there's stuff to, to dig into there. Like why, what makes him different than Jeed? Because uh, obviously to some extent, yeah, they are both uh, gay writers writing in a similar mm. time period with a very Nietzschean take on things, but what makes the one good and the latter bad? Um, I think mm. it's, it's something that someone could, could write, could write, interestingly about and I, I mean i think i've already kind of made my position clear i think that mm. in mishima there is a yearning for something higher that um seems to me to be absent from Xi. but then um it's not a simple one-on-one because like where does someone like oscar wilde fit into this I, i'm also a fan yeah wild uh but clearly you know someone who deals with these quote-unquote disordered desires uh and Wilde actually knew Jeet, I believe, towards mm. the end of his life. So um, all of this is to, A, bring literature and art into the equation here, which I think is worthwhile, but also to articulate that, I think, uh, th- yeah, this notion of the antinomian bargain, how can it go one of both ways, and then even more fundamentally, how even within an individual, um, there can be um, a sort of more banally hedonistic side to it, mm. And a very disordered side to it, and then also um, a potentially affirmative side, and I think that's something for a lot of a lot of us to think about. We contain multitudes, Matt. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I co-sign on that. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, we're uh, as as warned, we're we're going a little all over the map here. I think we got onto this topic like forty five minutes ago because we were talking about BAP citing the idea that um, of modern marriage being a raw deal for men, um, and then we kind of got onto uh, the virtues of Christian monogamy versus antinomianism and how they both things I think. I think we can make the case pretty well that both setups have virtues and vices and that whatever the case is, the modern world is kind of a mix of perhaps the worst elements of both as, to, as opposed to the best elements of both. Um, yeah. Worth clarifying, I think, Kosin's position a little bit. I think the reason, again, he because he doesn't go as, BAP slash Kosin does not go as far as telling people not to get married. I think... What we can say, and this is actually a good approach to selective breeding and the birth of philosophy in general, because obviously some of the ideas in this are quite fiery. Some of these uh, the ideas in this could uproot one's entire life if they, if you follow them to their logical conclusion and make you mm. persona non grata politically. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's good to approach a lot of these questions. You know, the the, the issue of modern marriage being one of them, like. It's not that you have to fully go in one direction or the other. You just have to realize where people are overreaching. Yes. You know, where, where certain ethoses are overreaching. And what that constantly points to with the marriage issue is um, specifically that a certain, um, what he would call a certain, like, poser, post-Trump conservative notion of, you know, laying out the basic points of why marriage is good and suggest, you know, suggesting like that you, you know, you, you, you as men, it's your responsibility to marry somebody, but if you're not very attracted to them or um, basically overselling marriage and monogamy and yeah, there, there's a position to be had in the middle basically. And maybe you have to go to the other extreme of appreciating the virtues of antinomianism to to move away from that overreach but i think by bouncing between these extremes we can hopefully arrive at a at a, at a more pragmatically and philosophically gratifying uh middle ground <laughs> i mean my sense here is that and correct me if i'm wrong because you uh have uh, you know read a, a bit more coasting than i have but that um as someone who is grounded in uh nietzschean ideals grounded in a um a theory of you know man's um perfectibility um as the ubermensch and you know Mm -hmm. the ability to you know kind of uh, overcome uh, shall we say in that scenario if that is the, the lens the prism that you are using then the kind of the the raw deal that marriage is begins to look a little um you know like uh, not so much a um a concrete wall against which one is bashing his head as a challenge to be overcome and exactly the, you have to figure it out yeah the kind of yeah you know the overman the man who is capable of you know mastering his surroundings and you know, mastering his his fate, he is the type of man who will nevertheless secure a wife and secure a family, and you know, do the things that he needs to do, and he will find a way to do them, and to kind of run away from 
marriage and family and like you know um not you know not necessarily goon all day but let's take the the hartiste version here and have you know serial sexual conquests well um you know that is in some sense a defeatist proposition it's accepting that you know your society has been corroded the incentives have been destroyed and you just need to you know, maximize your own ability to operate within this given system and forget about the higher ideals that you might have pursued or espoused under a different system. And if you, you know, truly believe in the overman, you believe that he sets his own ideals and he did regardless of right. the system, right. he establishes the benchmarks. And um, yeah, so it, it makes sense to me that, you know, it makes perfect sense to me that coasting slash BAP can be very critical of marriage while at the same time, in, you know, endorsing it and promoting it because he wants his, you know, readers to become the overman and yeah. to, you know, in, embrace the life that they, um, that they feel they deserve. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I'm remind. maybe this is a silly example, but I did, um, as a quick breakfast, I did slonk a few eggs before we hopped on here. Oh, wow. How and is I'm reminded that? of, uh, it was Never good. Slonked. I, oh, really? <laughs> I, uh, I have some, some nice organic, uh, farm delivered ones. So I figured, uh, I was in a rush cause I got the time for this pie wrong. <laughs> well, breakfast and slonked it. But anyway, I reminded of the thing in Man's World and Rog Nationalist's Man's World. The, the glo- the, this is maybe really silly, but the, the Globo Womo or whatever the fuck, I think it's an <laughs> yeah. Italian word, um, of the kind of based, the idea not, because uh, you have you know, like Jack Donovan and some of these other worthwhile thinkers will sort of praise like the coming age of, mm. uh, pi- well, BAP does this too, you know, the coming age of piracy and we have this image of like essentially a gangster, but there's, the Globo, the Globo Womo um, archetype was more like a, just like a really um, charismatic middle class guy with a mm. family. Uh, I do think one can find, you know, what one can realize where it's quite meaningful. And um, even people like uh, Lomez, I think, had a thread on this at some point. Mm. You know, he's quite a friend to BAP, but um, I, I don't know what his religious affiliation is per se, but he's a family guy for sure. And it's like, uh, at the end of the day, you know, pursuing, building a strong and good family is, is one of the, one of the best things that, that most of us can do. Um, there, there, all this is to say there's ways of, we don't all have to be pirates and there's a way of finding the spark in what BAP is saying and applying it to an otherwise more conventional life. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act we're all doing. Again, on that last Caribbean Rhythms episode, I, I listened to BAP in characteristic form, kind of talks about how he's always been a world traveler and can't stand the idea of sort of limitation uh, and limitation of his space. Um, and so has never, you know, sought out any kind of stability in life. But even he says, I'm not saying you should live your life that way. Um, you know, I'm glad there are people who who are itinerant in that way but the degree to which that applies to our own lives is something we all have to kind of figure out and refigure out every day i mean it's something i sort of and matt forney two sides of the same coin <laughs> yeah no maybe it's a they very should common, have a yeah. uh, they should have a pod maybe, yeah I, I, I would love to hear that you know and they both kind of go back to it caribbean terror 
Caribbean terror, yeah. That's um, meaningfully, you, though, yeah. You heard both, it here first, folks. <laughs> meaningfully, both Fornia and um, Bap, you know, even though they're not viewed as that similar or whatever, like they they do go back to an earlier uh, era of um, Sallow Forum and another, you know, like pre pre alt right even era of oh yeah, you know, the Manosphere, yeah, Bl- yeah. I, Shout I don't out want to, to call our Manosphere to Literature pod. Absolutely, like um, I don't know if I well, Forney certainly would have. I don't think Bap ever would have said he was part of the Manosphere, but obviously he was adjacent, and both of them learned from Hartiste. And yeah, yeah, this was that was an era of the internet, like 2014, 2015 into 2016, when um, a lot of these ideas were incubating. And I think one of the genius uh, genius things about Coaston, who I guess was at Yale at the time, um, is that he and I guess he's really one of the only people to do this shame there's not more uh, was able to quite effectively see what was going on in these very and at that time they were even more fringe than they are now online spaces and apply it to obviously Nietzsche but apply it to also Plato Socrates Leo Strauss even um Mm. and um absolutely make this thesis you know which I think gets to the heart of of the matter uh and gets to the heart of a lot of the uh sort of forbidden and under talked about truths that even something that is seemingly silly as the manosphere was circulating around another talking point that you know i have it highlighted i have it highlighted here as as, as something that both bap and coaston bring up but um i think we're past we're past the point that i'm just citing these talking points for that reason but i also just want to bring it up because i think it is another springboard for conversation and it's definitely relevant uh to what to the foregoing conversation um which is the topic of um and i think it's a quite a good criticism uh how the paltriness of marx's answers to how they would deal with um because we talked about on the last episode and on this episode how um Breeding and sexuality are inherently hierarchical, radically inegalitarian, mm. um, can be quite dark for those who experience them in a negative way, which to some extent is all of us, you know, learning your mm. place in the sexual marketplace or maybe you have an unwanted pregnancy. There's all the, you know, the, mm. those those two things in particular were cited as kind of dark male and female realities that can, can ensue from this uh, brutal process of nature that is sexuality. And... Coaston talks about and Bab talks about how um, Marxists, for all their talk about economic distributism and redistributism and, and inequality, have never supplied um, a good answer for how this issue of sexual inegalitarianism would be dealt with. And I think it's a really interesting topic. You know, it seems like it seems to me, I think it seems to Bap that the second some kind of, you know, whether or not this is even remotely possible, the second some kind of socialist communist utopia was achieved, um the sexual competition would just become even even worse because all of the other types of competition would center around that basic inegalitarian fact and uh it seems to me that that would be the case and that hierarchies and brutal, you know, turf wars would ensue over that. Um, yeah. Interestingly, um, a very dismissed thinker on our side, but someone who I, I think is interesting, at least for supplying a version of this answer, would be Herbert Marcuse, who mm. who dared in a way that is quite squeamish to think about, but who dared to, you know, by, by mixing Freud with Marx, 
dared to suggest that, um, you know, that the Marxist utopia could be one of polymorphous perversion, could be one in which, you know, sexual gratification was, was totally um, sort of dislodged from heterosexual intercourse and instead could be this, again, polymorphously perverse, I suppose, utopia of different fetishes and bizarre releases. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not something that certainly any conservative or right-wing thinker would find remotely desirable, but even, even normies, I think, think that sounds kind of gross. Um, well, also, <laughs> but, it, it's just... but interestingly, he did realize it was a problem, whereas most Marxists never touch on it. Go on, sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just not something that is rooted in any sort of um, uh, reality of uh, biology and gender. I mean, the idea that you could have a kind of a society where it's a sexual free-for-all well, I mean, we actually have that right now. Kind of. And it, <laughs> yeah. it, it is not a society that results in uh, a sexual free-for-all, frankly. It's a, a society that just becomes highly hypergamous. So, yeah, yeah I mean, like, the I, I mean, I guess he a would lot of illusions, ahead. you know, when he was writing, right? Because he was writing, I believe, the 60s. So he was, you know, in an era where we still had the hangover of Christian morality. We still had the hangover of an era of greater propriety and also of less feminism. You know, women didn't have full economic empowerment yet. So, you know, a lot of people, probably a lot of men who helped to usher in feminism thought, oh, we'll just take down the rules and then women will be running around wanting to do anything. And, you know, he was right. They, they were right, but not with them. Not with them, with, uh, with Chad. So yeah. it, you know, and if, if his answer is like, oh, okay, but then like, you know, at least, you know, in, the, in a society with no sexual morals, the guys can run around and have sex with each other, the, the beta guys. Uh, you I know, think it would they, be something like that. but I Well, okay, but I mean, like, yeah. biology is a thing. You know, most exactly. men don't want to yeah. do that. It's, you know, I it's not like yeah. it's a kind of like, oh, well, if I can't have sex with a woman, I'm going to, you know, have my, you know, co-worker jack me off. <laughs> That's just not, yeah. you know, you, you, well, you don't want that. It's like affirmatively something that you, like, not only is just like, is it a poor substitute, it's something you don't actually want. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize Marcuse because I'm not the expert, but I think it's almost even more extreme what he was saying, and um, more like way more degenerate, uh, although maybe slightly more consistent. Like, I again, I I, I don't want to mischaracterize. It. I just think that <laughs> he really he really did sort of maybe think through like what Marx's sexuality would, would would look like, and I I think it's even less hierarchical than anything resembling heterosexual intercourse i think maybe i again don't want to mischaracterize it um but like i think like gooning and things like that like really really weird fetishes um using different parts of the body even um i think he really thought that the sort of erotic spark could be totally uncoupled ultimately from what you know what freud would have called like the oedipus triangle like heterosexuality is okay. my take. I, I don't know. I, I actually want to read more. I think Marcuse is I mean, an interesting guy, if if deadly wrong. Uh, that does but sound I think like that, a very interesting you know, yeah. thing to dig into. Like, to see yeah. what 
his you know theory of you know uh, total a society of total sexual license from a far left um, economic and social perspective, what that what he imagined that would be in the 1960s, and the kind of um, you know. Uh, background and constraints that he was operating under and what we what we know today the knowledge we have today and just kind of like it'd be interesting to monday morning quarterback his ideas frankly oh yeah i, I think i think so um maybe I we should do a pod on that i mean i try to have to read more but i, I do think it's interesting i think that for him the Freudian uh, Oedipus Triangle, which again is basically the heterosexual arrangement of mother, fa- mother father, child, uh, was the equivalent of like, um, you know, a bourgeoisie versus proletariat. Like it's something that could be done away with entirely. So he he was a radical kind of Rousseauian thinker. Um, people who know more about Marcuse, please tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, but that's just my read on it. Again, which I don't think is totally ingener- ungenerous because even though I think it's insane um it's more consistent than a lot of a lot of marxist hand waving like oh sexuality like that's that's silly stuff we just got to feed uh feed the masses and things will be okay i mean i think it's Mm. that's that's a much worse take than you know i've always been this is an aside but i've always i've always found um specifically the frankfurt school to have uh some some rather interesting takes on some of this stuff but um yeah yeah, to keep keep going here. Um, yeah, we talked about how own space is in Bronze Age mindset as a concept, but also very much in selective breeding and the birth of philosophy as a concept. How you know the Greek aristocracy and it was in the first place started in the ethos of those who would leave um, what in the Greek is called nomos, the domination of convention. This is basically the same thing as the longhouse in Bronze Age mindset. People who wander away from that, people who wander towards the end of civil towards the edge of civilization, kind of formulate the highest types who ultimately um, formulate the, this kind of uh, aristocratic ethos, uh, which in large part is um, a contempt for the idea of mere life or mere convention. Uh, towards something higher, toward the promotion of human excellence, um, which is deeply, deeply rooted to breeding. Um, these are all these are all the points of commonality between and this is a little bit in review, but these are all the points of commonality between selective breeding, the birth of philosophy, and Bronze Age mindset. Um, in fairness, I think they can also be found in Nietzsche almost wholesale as well. Um, but mm. Kostin and Bap kind of both present themselves as. Um, like openly as you know promoters of Nietzsche like that they're happy with that characterization of the work um so talking about the eugenic angle again the thesis we sort of talked about is since Mm. since breeding is so inherently inegalitarian in the first place we might as well at least have it be inegalitarian in a way that is beneficial um Kostin says something the effect of all breeding culture that is not grounded in eugenic aims will eventually become dysgenic. This is all just kind of by way of review. I don't think I said this last time, so I wanted to bring it up here. I find that notion that things that are not eugenic end up being dysgenic if it's not explicitly stated. I think there's, I, I really don't remember if I said this, but I find there's an interesting parallel between the Robert Conquest quote, um, mm. any organization yeah. not explicitly and constitutionally right wing will, will sooner or later become left wing. I mean, I think fascinatingly similar and I, I think that 
I'm curious for your thoughts on this, but I think that speaks to the issue of entropy. I think that if we look at history, and I know people like Yarvin talk about this, you know, history kind of trends towards this chaos of different desires in competition, these different yeah. needs and interest groups in the realm of politics. And the I only way to defend against that is a strong founding principle, like this rock shall not be moved. I think that's very need. true. I think, so in my, my essay, Traditionally Horny, I suppose that a virtuous popular culture and a degenerate counterculture represents a sort of ideal for society. And I think that's true. I think that, you know, both that is true. And I think the quote, the Robert Conquest quote, as transformed by a, you know, an institution that is not, um, you know, purposefully uh, virtuous will become degenerate. I think that is that is absolutely true as well, at least in the current, you know, cultural uh, mechanism. That being said, I think that you can have a society that is uh, dedicated to, you know, virtue, sexual and otherwise, and nevertheless tolerate a degenerate counterculture. And I think that is maybe the only society that can do it, a society that says we have these values and this stuff that yeah. they're doing is wrong. And that's the way, that is the only thing maybe that stops the degenerate counterculture from taking over the popular culture. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, again, we see the way this plays out for the Greeks um, and for others. Uh, you know, eventually this aristocratic way of life founded upon selective breeding, mm. and you know, which is basically, again, the application of... Um, the, the principle of heredity discovered by early pastoral peoples to the pursuit of human excellence, you know, that eventually does find itself threatened, uh, again, by way of review in, in, in the picture Kosin gives us, uh, it is preserved within the intellectual life of the philosopher, mm. um, which becomes a successful citadel by way of a public relations campaign of associating philosophy with justice and other virtues uh, promoting the public good. Uh, Nietzsche comes along and says that this was too successful when it was picked up by Christianity and ended up being something that misbred man, um, but still believes that within the study of philosophy, um, one can kind of find access to this, this basic human truth again. Mm talked about this earlier, you know, gives it to the world and it's used and abused by so many people. But I guess BAP, you know, come, BAP slash Coast can come along and say, you know, and maybe try and point us in the right direction is I think mm -hmm. the far too simplified history of this. Um, I think that sounds on point. Yeah. And, you know, there is the, another thing, another thing that you can, see in Coast and as well as in all of BAP's work and including in Caribbean Arisms is this great um, respect, um, this, you know, this highest, uh, what's the word, reverence for people like Moses uh, and many others, you know, who, who kind of found their own people. Uh, you know, Plato yeah. would be that for philosophy as a sort of founder of a code of ethics and a code of PR as well. Um, there's a profound reverence and BAP says now kind of we're living in an age where 
all of those codes of ethics have dried up and we're kind of waiting for a new expositor of a new system of values, which we can get into what that could possibly look like. It's kind of hard to imagine, uh, but there is that great reverence. And I think, yeah, it has to do with what we talked about, you know, with regard to the Robert Conquest code, even though there has to be a, an explicit codification um, of, you know, uh, of the, shall we say, the principles of good breeding as applies to Coaston's ideas or, 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 or of the right wing as applied to political mm. ideas as he understood. There has to be, you know, we're not really like Tea Party American constitutionalists here, but there has to be something like that. There has to be a real, you know, thing that is not diverged from. Um, Agreed. And this is where people, I do, so let's be clear, like, you know, Nietzsche has a book, The Antichrist, which I'm currently uh, reading. Um, again, I've read it in the past. And he, he's very anti-Christian. He thinks Christianity misbred man. But, so, so there, there, there is a strong, I mean, I won't sugarcoat the anti-Christian nature of a lot of Nietzsche's writing. But a lot of people assume that there's like this total rejection of slave morality as a concept. Everything has to be master morality. And I don't think that's true. I think there is a great appreciation in Nietzsche as there is in BAP for the idea that you do have to create a system. Like, again, not everyone can be antinomian. Like we have, you know, there's a certain, you know, the as Plato would put it, and this is kind of another example where you can see how maybe Plato and Nietzsche are not so different despite the popular perception. The, the, one of the most famous quotes from Republic, you know, the, the philosophers must be kings and kings must be philosophers. There's a notion that people who understand um, this kind of thing have to be the ones in charge, have to be the ones um, making up the rules mm-hmm. and that the rest of people should follow. Um, as with almost every other topic we bring up today, I don't think that's the be-all, end-all. I'm not here saying that I am one of the philosopher kings, that I should rule uh there's a danger in that idea too <laughs> but um but but nevertheless i think it's it's obviously clearly true on some like i, I mean, you, you're gonna get some sort of fucked up uh consequences of suggesting that there's a class of people who who should rule and a class of people who should follow that you're always gonna have people arguing over who that class of people should be it, it solves no problems it creates many but nevertheless i'm i'm pretty won over that there is a basic reality to that that democracy even 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 the most functioning democracy um still kind of ends up looking like that like yeah we are hierarchical animals in short i mean whatever Uh, the society selects for you will have people who will be better at that and people who will be worse at that and the people who are better are going to uh generally marry the best of the best yeah, and, no, and and from there, ideally, you have a people who continues to flourish and continues to kind of raise the bar. That's how Nietzsche yeah. comes to be associated with things like transhumanism, even there, which I don't necessarily endorse. But there's a desire to improve, which is fundamentally healthy. Um, and again, I think this is a relevant time to bring it up. All of this, you know, selective reading and the birth of philosophy, um, both are kind of radically rooted to tyranny for Coaston and for Plato. And this is why Plato was ultimately executed. And um, I think based on what we've said over the past few minutes here, I think it's easy enough to articulate. You know, even, even just that quote from the Republic does a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, the idea that 
the philosopher should be king and king should be philosopher, well, you see how basically philosophy as a scientific, as a intellectual pursuit um, can be used to justify uh, leadership over and opposed to mere convention. Um, it basically Absolutely. is a boon to... It basically, it give, philosophy gives the person who understands best, who understands reality the best, permission to rule. Is I think that in makes short. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, another talking point I wanted to hit. Um, I think last week we talked a little bit about Animal Planet and about, you know about nature specials, how they sometimes show you know unadorned realities so to speak that a lot of the time we would like to hide in our civilized and moral language another thing i i found sort of it's a little bit of an interesting aside um you know this i didn't actually watch it but it thanksgiving week here there's mm. a dog show on animal planet and uh i this is kind of just a throwaway thought really but it's it's interesting like how sort of upper crusty the whole notion of the dog show is and how yeah. British it is. And uh, it gets you thinking, like, how... Obviously, we don't have a Greek aristocracy anymore, but what are the modern equivalents? Obviously, English aristocracy still exists in some capacity. It certainly did 100 years ago. And we have this notion of, you know, breeding not just as eugenics, but also um, breeding as, like, oh, your your child is well-bred. They know, they, they know their manners. Um, yeah. It's in- interesting to think about how these things live on, I think, in that sort of upper-crusty British... Um, society, which people love to criticize. You know, I'm watching this. You know, I'm watching Gossip Girl right now, mm. and the Upper East people they live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and they have these sort of waspy associations. And it's you know, you, one of the main characters is kind of a more underdog type. Um, Gilmore Girls is another example that mm. plays with this dynamic. We love in America to kind of snicker at the stuffiness, but we also can't get enough. Like, we also love shows and, and other media that portrays that stuffy, um, inherited from England kind of culture because it is a vestige of what we recognize is a quite, I think, quite rational and good um, program of aristocracy and of breeding and of standards um and a and, bit of a yeah, lost one and because... a bit of a lost one and increasingly lost but we still we still love it i mean you still yeah there's still like yeah like i bring wasps, up the dog show they're yeah. uh, they're gone and the uh the british aristocrats well i guess they're still around but um they don't quite seem to be uh, as aristocratic as they once were if we're to look at let's say harry and megan correct no, no doubt. So there's a, I mean, but there's a hunger for yes. I mean, definitely. There's Harry and Meghan have degenerated, no doubt. But like, why are people so obsessed with them in the first place? And it's True, because they exactly. come from that world. They're literally Harry doesn't seem to have. Neither of them seem to be especially talented in anything, but they're celebrities because they're rooted yeah. to this aristocratic, you know, system yeah. that we once had. And I bring up the dog show again, not to be too. Um, crass but it, it is interesting to watch how they you know people talk about even how the british are, are quite autistic about breeding in general um there's a lot of horticultural um science that's rooted to britain of you know breeding different kinds of apples and flowers and things like this and you really see it's on full display in the dog show how this this knowledge of 
heredity um, can be used scientifically. You know, it's been outside the realm of what humans can do, um, but... Mm. You know, the dog show nationally broadcast on Animal Planet or wherever is this last vestige of really getting into the nuts and bolts of heredity. And it's kind of amusing to see. And the association with stuffy aristocracy is not accidental. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Um, Worth noting, historically, uh, is that, uh, again, not to go on too much of a British tangent, but... um, you know, maybe it's just because we're we're in America, but you know, pro post French Revolution, there just isn't a French aristocracy like this. Um, Germany, I'm not really much of a historian, so maybe maybe I'm out of my depth here. But I very yeah, much I have think to take something to that for sure. That the you know the British aristocracy was one of the last really yeah. functioning aristocracies, basically. And I don't remember if Coaston says this or if I kind of noticed. Obviously, it's no secret. But when you look at who was who basically invented modern eugenics who did the most writing on it uh it was in fact anglo-americans yeah um, that would make sense the nazis uh took their ideas from anglo-americans now this is often bandied yeah. as a left-wing like um talking point about how like uh actually the entire western world was nazi um yeah well maybe by this definition it was <laughs> and uh it is it is interesting to know that basically you know there's some hokey spiritual ideas within nazism um but a lot of the you know racial science was was in english import and um i bring this up one just because it's kind of interesting history to think about um but also it i, I think it speaks to Bap's point if we're to accept the premise which i i Again, I don't have all the historical arguments for but which seems intuitively correct that the british aristocracy was one of the you know, closest things or last things to a, like a really functioning aristocracy in the world, uh, then it is no coincidence that it was that aristocracy that was the most heavily interested in breeding. It speaks to mm. the Coaston point that selective breeding, like, is is the essence of aristocracy. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, yeah. that, I think definitely you, you see that in the UK, you see that in the the dog shows. You see that in dogs. <laughs> yeah, no, it's on. yeah. Just funny how the, the the spaces these things continue to exist in, and I think the dog show really is one of the last bastions of it. Um, Peta has picked up on this, and you know, people made fun of Peta, uh, which they should. I, I'm no fan of Peta, but I think Peta once suggested that the dog show was somehow Nazi that they were doing. <laughs> what nazis did and they were 100 percent correct so yeah um, no i mean the emphasis on yeah. breeding like this is a well-bred dog this is not i mean like literally it's about physicality it's about you know the you know patterns on their coat it's about mm-hmm. the position of their ears every so money detail yeah yeah and, and it's it, about behavior too and so, behavior you know. and exactly yeah. and so that gets to the root of you know the uh fundamental hypocrisy that is on display at the dog show because you have these people who, you know, because they are, you know, exist in, you know, Western society today, generally, you know, if you grab, uh, you know, one of them, they will almost certainly endorse some form of blank slateism applied to humans. But, you know, they know their dogs and they, you know, they do not endorse blank slateism with regard to dogs. 
they understand that heredity is very important. That uh, a dog that is not well bred, it can never be a dog that was well bred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> no, it's, it's it's interesting stuff to think about. Um, I keep trucking along here. Uh, I mean, I think we've kind of articulated the connection between breeding and philosophy, but it basically has to do with that initial understanding of nature as dark and inegalitarian, but also improvable, I suppose. I, I broke yeah. this little gloss down, and I, I hope I, I hope it's illustrative um, and also illustrative, perhaps, of the connection with tyranny, but I kind of just penned it down when I was taking notes. You know, in genetics and philosophy, both, we can disguise or forget the realities of nature, which might have... Uh, you know, in, in genetics and philosophy, both, we can disguise or forget the realities of nature, and this might have any number of palliative effects on discourse surrounding it. Like, it's mm. a lot more comfortable to talk about philosophy in a sort of more priestly, virtuous manner, like, you know, this is how you should live your life. Um, and it's obviously a lot more palliative to talk about um, genetics, you know, not getting to the heart of the matter. Um, yeah. But if we, and I think even in Nietzsche and Bap, there's an understanding that that's going to be palliative for, for reasons we've discussed on on the nature of discourse. A, it's um, just too much for a lot of people to get into that stuff. B, talking about the dark realities can have, as we talked about earlier with the Gide and, and that lot, you know, can can lead to some people who who would kind of use it for a degree of wickedness or at least buggery. Sure. Um, but if we truly forget about it, then it's it leads to a disastrous drift away from truth, from excellence, from transcendence. That's Nietzsche's take on what happened by way of Christianity and the Christianization of Platonism, which he calls Platonism for the people, mm. uh, ended up misbreeding man. Um, but he he tries to to to, to re-reveal it. Um, the the issue becomes like how do you preserve truth and transcendence? enough that it can be accessed by the right types um but not so much that the fire of philosophy the fire of mm. the knowledge of heredity and of breeding and of antinomianism and and all these things how do we how do we preserve that fire without without um you know setting the whole house ablaze the same fire that cooks dinner is the fire that can burn the house down i mean i think that mm. is one of the principal political issues, and um, that's where Strauss comes in, uh, I think, in, in large part. Um, Kostin, as we kind of talked about, distanced himself a little bit from Strauss, but I, you know, much more. He, but Strauss does talk about this issue much more explicitly than Plato ever really does. Um, although maybe Plato does does a bit, and, and certainly more than Nietzsche. I'm reminded of a quote. In fact, you know, I think uh, I learned this in a, a course I took with Millerman, Michael Millerman on Strauss. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coast and I think Millerman both view Strauss as a fairly dogmatic Nietzschean. The quote is uh, fr from Strauss. You know, I, I I I believed every word of Nietzsche. You know, in my twenties, I believed every word of Nietzsche, but I questioned. I began to question why he. You know, if he should have written any of it down. And mm -hmm. I think that gets into the kind of esoteric writing between the lines angle. There's this notion that the types of truths expounded by Calicles and the Gorgias, but then later by Nietzsche in a much more 
um, beautiful way and in an mm. exhaustive way um, are are true, <laughs> but also can be quite dangerous if if they go too wide. This has been the fate of Nietzsche. Perhaps it will be the fate of Bap. I mean, you see people kind of misinterpreting some of this stuff. Um, Bap and Nietzsche both always emphasize they write for the few, not for the many. The subtitle of Zarathustra is what? A book for everyone and no one. Mm. There is this implicit understanding that they are playing with fire and that they are not necessarily, you know, speaking to everyone, but only to higher types. Um, I'm, I'm circulating here, but I, I think that's the basic political issue is how you speak of truth without, speak the truth without, um, without leading to calamity. Yeah, no, I mean, it's obviously a fine line to, uh, to draw and to walk. And, um, I mean, I, I think that gets back to one of the central issues here which is the power and possibility of philosophy and you know how when you move you know away from just perfecting your physical abilities and start to kind of question why things are the way they are and you know everything we talked about with regard to the birth of philosophy it um, it's a tool for for good and ill and it you know has to be regarded uh, as such and you know, yeah. treated with respect by way of sort of concluding um on selective reading the birth of philosophy look i sent you 20 pages of single space notes at the outset of this um we hit a lot of it there's other stuff i want to keep working over so i'll probably write more um mm -hmm. about this in the future i'm definitely interested in that sort of antinomian bargain angle of you know um how the relationship of modern society um, with um, with antinomianism and how it should and shouldn't be used. Um, I don't think I'm an authority on that, but it's something I want to think through through more. But I think we've done an okay job, at least, of, of um, summarizing the, the key arguments within mm. Coast and Olimari's book, Selective Reading and the Birth of Philosophy, hopefully just enough to get people to actually read it. Um, that Bapian caveat, you know, these 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 podcasts, these radio shows are are maybe they're best for entertainment. It's kind of hard to really get into the nuts and bolts of um, of the philosophy, of the anthropology, of the history. You're going to have to read the book for that, and I encourage you to do so. Um, and, and we'll move on to Strauss in, in just a moment here, and, and that will be for paying patrons. But um, I just want to highlight it. Yeah, by Bat Book, by Coastin Book, <laughs> by Coastin Book. Um. There, there, and we've talked about this, but but it is, I think, a good note to end on. You know, there's a little question of like, what's next after the the wheels of this stuff have been rolled over you? Like, how to respond? Again, I want to talk more about the antinomian bargain at some point, but um, but there's also, and this is this is in Bronze Age mindset too. Um, you know, there's there's a notion of if all space is controlled, if this is we're kind of up against a political reality that doesn't make a lot of room for direct electoral pol political action. You know, BAP supports as I, as do I you know Javier Millet's recent win in Argentina he supports Trump as do I but still there's a fundamental radical I would say pessimism about the real prospects of um politics there's the notion that things will probably get worse before they get better 
And so, um, one thing I've always been really inspired by is, um, you know, the, these, these much more outside the box. And this again is very much like, um, the founding of philosophy. If, if we can make such a grandiose comparison, um, we have to find different institutions that preserve this stuff. Um, even in the face of a pol politically hostile environment, um, one bit of spiritual and religious history that I love Bap's gloss on is the notion of the, um, and this is again, something that both Coast and Bap talk about, like a sort of key, key similarity. Um, the notion that the Buddhist, that Buddhist monasteries, um, were an attempt to kind of recreate the, the feeling of the open step for one thing, and also the brotherhood of the war band. Um, and I think there's a lot of sort of not just I'm not because, again, I think there is a danger. And this is sort of what Nietzsche said happened with philosophy in um, going in too priestly of a direction. It's not all spiritual, not all religious, not all arts and letters. Um, there has to be a real and maybe that's where something more like bodybuilding and learning how to fight might come in. Um, these things are relevant too. Um, it's, I think, a constant work to, to remember why we do these things. Uh, and that has to be rooted in a real reckoning with nature. But within that, um, I think that sort of the answer is to cultivate um, these alternative spaces. One may, what, what, just as one humbly uh, submitted Nutcranker earlier as an example <laughs> of a literature that deals with these chaotic desires and drives but has a positive message shining through one may humbly suggest that uh podcasting and and the the, the online um you know different communities we're in for all of their many follies and all of us fall into down traps mm -hmm. all of us fall into doom scrolling but one may humbly suggest that we are creating an enclave for the preservation of this fire that's right <laughs> carrying the the light forward to reclaiming the literary holy land from the evening.